Uh, my name's Trey. I'm the lead pastor here. So glad to have you this morning. Uh, if you're tuning in online, great to see you uh, again. Great to be seen. Um, hey, so last week, so what we're doing is we're going through uh, the book of Acts, and we're in this, called, called this series, A Peaceful Invasion, right? And we're just going through the book of Acts. We're just, just seeing what the Lord is doing uh, as the gospel is going out and as the Holy Spirit is moving forward. What is, what is God doing? He's, he's invading the world peacefully. He's letting people know that he has a plan for people. And what we've been seeing is last week we were following Peter, one of the apostles, uh, he had been, as he was continuing to follow Jesus even after Jesus has ascended into heaven, right? He's putting faith into action, and we, we kind of looked at the ways that Peter did that. And, and Peter was, uh, so just recap the narrative from last week because we're picking up right in, into it. Peter was led by God into a home to a place where he really shouldn't have been, at least not according to his ideas about what was right for religious people like him, for religious Jews like him. Um, When he gets to this house, he even tells the people, and I think it's a little bit of an awkward thing to say, he basically says, you guys know I shouldn't be here, and I know I shouldn't be here. It's not right for me to associate with you, to be in your house, to share a meal with you, at least not according to his prior understanding of what God's law required of him. But suddenly, because of this revelation, this vision that he has that we covered last week, and then the subsequent series of events, Peter finds himself someplace he shouldn't be, led there by God. He's in Caesarea, a Gentile city, surrounded by the family of of a Roman centurion, the most Gentile of all Gentiles, like the, the conquering, dominating type, a man named Cornelius. And this man sent for Peter Uh, to come to him because God told him to. God told Cornelius that he had been hearing his prayers because Cornelius was a religious man, a guy who like gave alms to the Jews. He like sought the Lord. He was trying to seek out and find out the truth. And God saw that. And even though Cornelius wasn't Jewish, he couldn't even go into the synagogue. God told him Peter was going to come and deliver some good news to Cornelius. And so this guy, he gathers his family together. He makes introductions when Peter comes. Cornelius explains to to Simon Peter um, that uh, he must have something to tell him because God said you would come here and tell us something. So, you know, he just sets the stage and says, go ahead, tell us what 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 you're here to, to tell us. And Peter's really put on the spot, right? Again, he's not in the headspace where this was going to be normal because he definitely knows what to say. He's been going around saying the thing that he's supposed to say everywhere in in Israel, right? He's been telling Jewish people this gospel, this good news about who Jesus was. He's been doing it. He knows it like the back of his hand. He just was surprised by the context. He was surprised that God had sent him here to tell these non-Jewish people about this gospel. Because he was under the impression that the gospel news, the good news about Jesus was for the Jews, But God makes it clear to Peter, actually, I've got a plan, and it's much bigger than that. This good news that you started proclaiming in Israel, it's actually good news for everyone, for the whole world, now and forever. And and so that is where we pick up uh, in Acts here, okay? So we're just going to pick up, I think it's verse 34. Read along with me, will you? Opening his mouth, Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality, but in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. 
the word which he sent to the sons of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know the things which took place throughout all Judea, starting from Galilee, after the baptism which John proclaimed. You know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he, was about, he, he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. For God was with him, and we are witnesses of all the things he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They also put him to death by hanging him on a cross. God raised him up on the third day and granted that he become uh, visible, uh, not to all people, but to witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God, that is, to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead, and he ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly to testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. Of him, all the prophets bear witness that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. And while Peter was speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all who were listening to the message. All the circumcised believers who came with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they were hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God, and Peter answered, Surely no one can refuse the waters for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did, can he? And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, and then they asked him to stay on for a few days. Quite a scene ensues here as Peter gets up and speaks and proclaims this gospel message that he's been proclaiming to the Jews. The same way that the Spirit fell upon the disciples in Acts 2, like we looked at a couple months ago, and the way he's been moving in the Jerusalem church, like we've been seeing throughout Acts, he's now moving among the Gentiles in the exact same manner among these non-Jews. And it is a huge deal. It really changes the paradigm for the church. I like how Leslie Newbegin explains it. It has been rightly said that this is not just the story of a conversion of Cornelius, but also of Peter and the church. Before Peter had finished, the situation passes outside of his control. Cornelius and his household are caught up in a way uh, which cannot be gainsaid into the same experience of freedom and joy which Peter and the others have known since Pentecost. His own... Uh, Peter understands that he's not in control. A power greater than his own has broke down the hedge which protected devout Jews from the uncleanness of the heathen world. Peter can do nothing but humbly accept the fact and received these uncircumcised pagans by baptism into the fellowship of the church. See what happens in this day. It's not just an expansion of the church. It's a paradigm shift for the church for what it means to be a follower of Jesus. The issue that is clarified by God himself is this. Who is accepted by God? That's the question. And that's what God answers. Peter might have before this time thought that God could maybe reach past Israel and maybe bring in Gentiles, but it would only have been after those Gentiles cleansed themselves, performed the rites and rituals of Judaism, things like circumcision. They would have to do those things, and then maybe God would find them acceptable. But God indicates by what he does here that actually what is fundamental to this movement is not circumcision, it's not law-keeping, it is not the culture of Israel, it is something else entirely. 
See, if you think about how the Jews saw the world, like their worldview, they saw the world in in terms of its orientation towards God. To a religious Jew, everything in the world, like from people and animals and insects, they were all fitting into two categories, things that were clean and things that were unclean. That's to say they were either acceptable to God, they were clean, God was okay with them, Or they were unacceptable to God. They were unclean. God couldn't be in their presence. Clean things and clean people could be among these people who took God's name on themselves, like who called themselves by by the name of Yahweh, who, who considered themselves to be worshipers of this God. Clean things could be among them, but unclean things were not allowed. That's why he couldn't go to their house. That's why he wouldn't have done that. Because I can't have these unclean people sullying my relationship with God. Because God doesn't like unclean things. But suddenly, it becomes clear that God is doing something way different than what he had expected and what God has sort of done through the Jews in the past. God tells him in this vision earlier in Acts 10.15, what God has cleansed no longer consider unholy. God is doing something different. No longer consider it unholy. Look, I, have, um, I wrote down, I, I have six kids. That's not true. I have four kids, which is enough to think you have six kids. I have four kids, um, and my job at home, um, as was my father's before me, is to be lord of the sink. That's, that is my purview. That's what I'm allowed to uh, be over in the kitchen. Nothing else in the kitchen is my responsibility. I've been told that several times. Usually, uh, I like to use the dishwasher when the sink needs to be dealt with, but sometimes the dishes are just piled so high, right, that we, and, and the need is so urgent for a new dish that I bypass the dishwasher. I grab a dish or two from the sink, and I scrub them by hand, usually with soap, but, you know, who's counting? And, and I give them to my kids, and they say, hey, you didn't clean that. That didn't go through the dishwasher. And I tell them, what your father has cleansed, no longer consider unholy. We are a very spiritual family. Look, here's the thing. What God is doing is he's standing at the sink. He's seeing all the dishes piled high, and he's decided that instead of throwing them in the dishwasher of law, he's going to grab them out of the sink, clean them by himself, and then he's going to put them to use. That's his prerogative. Peter would have argued with God. He would have said something like, well, you have to put them in the dishwasher. But God decides that he wants those dishes, and he wants to fill them up and make use of them, so he has washed them, he has made them clean, they are his dishes, he's going to do what he wants with them. What we see here is God is breaking a well-established pattern. He's defying expectations with the aim of cleaning and cleansing what was thought of as dirty and making use of it. But why? Why is, is a very important question. Is it because he's nice? Is it because uh, he was deciding he was wrong about all that law stuff and, you know, I just changed my mind? Look, I think if we look at Jesus' words in John 4, we get an idea of what he was doing. Jesus says this in John 4, 23, an hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. What is God doing? He is bringing about a worship revolution. 
He's changing the meaning of what it means to be a worshiper of God to get the truer and better and good. He is seeking worshipers who will worship him in spirit and in truth. Now, you don't come to God. You don't have to come to God through worship and through ritual but anyone who comes to God, whom God chooses to reveal himself, he, he fills him up. He becomes acceptable by him because he's chosen. Because, like it says here, God is not one to show partiality. But in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. Welcome to him. God has made him welcome. Peter is learning that the fundamental way that we worship God is not about the outward any longer, not about the, the rites and the rituals, but about the inward. Later on, when Peter is questioned about this event in Acts 15, he comments about this day and he reflects and he says this, God, who knows the heart, testified of them, that is these Gentiles, giving them the Holy Spirit. God knows the heart. What Peter sees is that fundamentally, worshiping God is about your heart, and it's about your spirit, and anyone who really seeks after him, anyone who really fears him, who reveres him, who loves him, that person will find God, and God will pour himself out upon them. He will be present with them. They will be acceptable. Why? How? Because God has made a way that all the unclean could be made clean through Jesus. God's made a way to take unclean things, make them clean. I want to point something out, though, because sometimes people read this passage, and this one in particular, and they think, well, what God is up to, it's just about not caring about sin so much anymore, and just caring about the heart. And so you just have to have a good heart, whatever that means, right? And don't worry about the rest of the stuff. I think we have to read this for what it actually says, and I don't think it really says that. Look, God isn't just grabbing dishes out of the sink and saying, I don't care about the gunk at the bottom. I'm just going to swig it down anyway. He isn't care not caring about the residual sink scum, right? You know, the sink scum. You got to wash that off. No, he's saying, I'm going to clean these so that I can fill them up. Not, I don't care. I'm going to clean them. God isn't just saying, I don't care about clean and unclean. What he's saying is that I am making a new and an ultimate way to be made clean. God cares about righteousness. Our calling as, as believers of worshipers of God is righteousness. I know that sounds like arrogant, but we're invited into it by grace. God cares about sin. God cares about transforming people, taking them from people who are ignorant and, and like totally against God, filling them up with his spirit and making them into people who love him and worship him in spirit and in truth. He has not thrown that idea out. Worshiping God has always been and will always be about consecration to him, being set apart for him. Or another word for that is just holiness. Worshiping God has always been about holiness, about saying, I am for you, God, nothing else. That's how we come and we worship God. What's interesting about the ways that the religious uh, Jews thought is this, while everything in the world was either clean or unclean, clean things were not themselves holy. I got a little diagram that kind of illustrates this. It's really not that complicated, right? 
unclean things couldn't uh, be made holy. It wasn't possible. They could not just go from unclean to holy. They would have to be cleaned first, and then they could be sanctified, consecrated, made holy, set apart for God. Clean things could be made holy if they were cleansed even further and, and set apart for God. But clean things are not in and of themselves holy. In Israel, they were just common things. They were neutral things. In the Jewish custom, very few things were holy. Very few people were holy. Most clean things were common, not holy, not set apart for God. But what's interesting about what God does here, he takes unclean people and he says this, what God has cleansed no longer consider unholy. It's like leapfrogging, right? Unclean to holy. God isn't saying, look, Peter, I'm, just, I'm okay with these Gentiles. Don't worry about them. They don't offend me anymore. I don't care about clean and unclean. What he's saying is I'm taking those who are what's totally against me, totally unclean, totally separate from me, and I'm not just making them neutral. I'm not just saying, oh, yeah, they're fine. I'm making them holy. I'm setting them apart for my use so that I can be present and fill up them with my spirit they're mine. Look at the order of events. Peter preaches, right? Ta- tells him the story, the, the, the story of Jesus. It comes to the end. He ordered, there, Acts 10, 42, just reading. He ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly testify that Jesus is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. Of him, all the prophets bear witness that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. And while Peter was still speaking those words, right, while he's talking about the forgiveness of sins, then the Holy Spirit falls upon all who are listening to the message. Peter makes it clear that sin is a problem. Sin needs forgiveness. Not so that we can be neutral, but so that we can be filled with the life and power and grace of Jesus, set apart, made holy. Jesus' death and resurrection bought by the forgiveness of sins so that we can be made clean and then be set apart for the Lord. But that's not all. Like, we're just going to keep reading, okay? Going on into Acts 11. Now the apostles and the brethren who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those who were circumcised took issue with him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men, those unholy, unclean people, and you ate with them. But Peter began speaking and proceeded to explain to them the orderly sequence. Right? And then he goes on, he tells them exactly what happened in just the previous chapter in Acts 10. He tells them line by line what happened, right? So we're actually going to skip that part because, you know, you, we read it last week and you can go back. Okay, so skipping to verse 15, he, he summarizes it and then he gets back to the time when he's speaking. He says, and as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them just as he did upon us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he used to say, John baptized with water but you will baptize with the Holy Spirit. Therefore, if God gave to them the same gift as he gave to us, also after believing in the Lord Jesus, who was I to stand in God's way? And when they heard this, they quieted down and they glorified God saying, well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. After this happened, like Peter went back among among the um, 
the apostles in Jerusalem, and they had a lot to say. They, they thought, man, he's kind of like a pushing his agenda, right? Peter got a lot of pushback. And it's funny how he defended himself, right? When he's questioned in Jerusalem, his defense is straightforward. Who was I that I could stand in God's way? God did this. This wasn't me. This is something that God was doing. And upon hearing about this event, they're like in awe, these circumcised Jews who had this very different idea of how God would be working in the world. They're in awe. Why? Well, because God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. See, they had an understanding about the ways of God. They knew about repentance that leads to life. They knew about the spiritual life that came to them as a result of them turning towards God, seeing the light of the gospel exposed, seeing that Jesus was God himself come to take their place, to die in their place, to make a way so that they could have life with God. They experienced that, but they marveled that the Gentiles could have that same thing too. They assumed that the only way for the unclean to be given life was for them to be made clean through the law. But God leapfrogs this expectation. He makes them clean and he gives them life and it is like dumbfounding to them. They marvel at it. Sure, maybe they could have believed that the Gentiles would have been forgiven, made clean, but it would be, uh, but, but the, the fact that they could be partakers right along with them, these special people, Israel, of spiritual life, that was a wonder to them. But understand this. If we trust in Jesus, he takes our sins away. He gives us spiritual life, right? This is your inheritance. Like people who are called by Jesus, who are washed clean, set apart for his purposes, they receive this repentance that leads to life. Your life in Christ, like the calling that you have, if you've given your life to Jesus, it's now about worshiping him in spirit and in truth. It's about having the life of God at work in you right now. The life, the word life, the, what's in view here is not about just getting to heaven when you die. That's not, this is not what he's saying. That's not the repentance that leads to life. It's just, oh, eventually it'll mean something. Right now it means nothing. He's, he's, he's making a point that there is something that's going on in them, God's life, God's spirit in them right now. The Greek word is, is zoe. It means more than just biological life. It means spiritual life. What they're saying and marveling at is that the Gentiles and the Jews, Jews all have spiritual life now, and it is remarkable. If you have given your life to Jesus, and this is what you need to understand, you have been set apart, made holy, consecrated to him, so that you can worship him in spirit and in truth. It's about having the life of God in you now. He brings life to your deadness. You're set apart for fellowship with him. You've turned from your uncleanness and you've been caught up in his grace and his mercy, set apart for him, made holy in Jesus Christ, sanctified for his purpose. And your life now is filled with spiritual potential. If you have this new life in Jesus, you can worship God with your whole self now. That's what was bought for you. That's what this repentance leading to life is for, so that we can worship God with all of our spirit and all of our soul. And it's a fascinating thing about this passage, right? And it would have been, I think, a little unsettling to these religious people, and it certainly unsettled a lot of religious people who didn't believe. It cuts two ways. 
On one level, God's making it clear that the barriers to relationship with him are gone because he's taking care of those. He's making people clean. All we need to do to be right with God now is just draw near to him, trust by faith that he has taken our sin, forgiven it. Now we just can be set apart to, to worship him. It's now a matter of my heart. Is my heart seeking after God? Do I have a heart of faith? Do I receive what he's given me? That's what it's about. It's about spiritual life. But the story cuts another way too. It doesn't just mean that those who were once outside can now come in. It also means that those who are inside, because they're really good rule followers, they have some soul searching to do. If God is looking for people who worship in spirit and in truth, but I'm so used to worshiping God and thinking that all he wants from me is to just be a good little boy, a good little girl, follow some rules, then this passage is going to make me a little uncomfortable. Because he's, he's indicating that worshiping him is more than about checking boxes. And I'm just a good box checker. And I don't know how to do this spiritual life thing that well. I don't have confidence that I'm going to do it that well, right? God isn't looking for just rule followers. He's looking for people who are consecrated to him, worshipers in spirit and in truth, people who are true worshipers. It's about having spiritual life. It's about finding your life caught up in his life, seeking him in everything. It's about God being with me in my day to day and living from that place of honoring him and worshiping him when I wake up in the morning and I go to sleep at night in my heart just rejoicing in what he's done and giving him more so that he might use it for his glory. It's about me turning from my view of God, who's just like an enforcer, a heavy, a, a rule maker, and instead to understanding God who like wants to interact with me and know me and be known by me. Like it's a very different picture of who God is in a way that we relate to God, but that's the way he's opening up, a way to spiritual life where we just participate with God in all that he is. We're invited in. Yes, I mean, we, we deal with sin, right? Dealing with sin is essential, right? Dealing with sin is essential, but it's not for the sake of being clean, which is just like being neutral. Uh, if you want to go hang gliding, I don't want to go hang gliding, but if you want to go hang gliding, you need to take off the 50-pound backpack that you carried up to the top of the cliff, Right? You need to put it down, and if you don't, if I strap into the hang glider, I'm, I'm just assuming, if you strap into the hang glider with a 50-pound backpack and you jump off the cliff, you're going to get a really hard lesson in physics, right? It's not going to be a long trip, right? God is not just trying, though, to get you to take off your backpack of sin. He's inviting you to hang glide. If you think... Yeah, that's got this guy. He's having a good time. Uh, if you think your life with God is about not doing bad things, I think you're missing it. It's so much more than that. If you think your life with God is about not doing bad things, then you are missing it. God isn't trying to manage your sin. That's not what he's doing. He's trying to give you life, life to the fullest, life abundant, life with him. So much more than sin management. We need to put off sin if we're going to walk with God. Yes and amen. But a walk with God is about way more than not sinning. Jesus died so that you can be free of sin, so that you can be consecrated to God, have spiritual life with him. 
We need to get our sights on the right thing. We need to understand what this Christian walk is really about if we're going to do it well, if we're going to be everyday disciples. If you think your life in Christ is just about taking off the backpack, then you will endlessly be struggling with that, taking it off, putting it on. Oh, it's coming back, taking it off, putting it on. If that's your vision is just that the backpack stay on the ground and you stay two feet firmly planted on the side of the cliff like a cliff dweller, then you have the wrong vision of what you're after. But if you think your life is about hang gliding, trusting God with everything, giving yourself to that vision, you won't be thinking about the backpack too hard. Somebody, you're, you're up in the air, thousand feet up the air, someone throws you a backpack, you're going to say, ah, uh-uh. nope. Because I know if I grab onto that, I'm going, and it's not going to be fun. I think that's a great illustration. But honestly, like, I'm embarrassed by it for this reason. I, I moved here from New England. And as everyone knows, New England people are snobs. And I lived there for 12 years, so it rubs off, you know? I'm a little cynical. I've become a little cynical. And, and, uh, and so I sort of hate this metaphor because it's like I'm saying, all you need to do is spread your wings and fly. And I think that's dumb because I'm a cynical person. But think for a second about your calling. Because we are prone to a kind of cynicism that masks itself as maturity. I am prone to a kind of cynicism that masks itself as maturity. To many who heard about what God was doing here, they rejected it because it looked like lawlessness and childishness and silliness to them. It wasn't serious enough for God. They preferred to think of their calling from God as being just okay with them, not as having actual spiritual interactive life where he's a part of their lives with him. Because they thought, well, God doesn't want to be, have that kind of connection with me. Right? He's God. You know, we've got to give him a space. <laughs> Look at guys. Do not be the sort of person who stands on the side of the cliff, arms folded, satisfied to be without sin, thinking that you're without sin, thinking that that's all there is to your life in Jesus. You are called to a life with God. You are called to living out a vibrant faith. You are called into a worship revolution where your soul is constantly seeking the Lord, rejoicing at the things that he's doing, where he is really truly what you can put your hope and faith in and joy in. He's doing something. He's constantly drawing you into his love and into his presence and filling you up with his spirit, filling you up with joy and the fruits of the spirit, things that did not naturally come out of your life before. They're coming out now because he is with you and he's transforming your heart, your mind, your soul. He's brought life where before, man, you were just trying to be good. But now he's doing something so much better. And of course, this means you put sin behind you. Anyone who's worshiping the Lord will lay aside sin the same way that anyone who, yeah, is going to try to have catch that backpack is going to say, no, I'm not going to be interested in it. Look, understand, All these people here of Jesus' forgiveness. Oh, sorry. Sometimes I read the sentence before actually reading the sentence, and then it doesn't sound right. Understand, after these people here of Jesus' forgiveness, they're not just set free. They are filled with the presence of God. Like right as Peter's saying, there's forgiveness of sin because of what this man Jesus... God himself has done for you. They are filled with the presence of God. As people, 
made clean by Jesus' sacrifice, they are now set alight with this new life with him, a new passion for God. They are filled with his spirit. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, Do you know anything of this fire? If you do not, confess it to God and acknowledge it. Repent and ask him to send the spirit and his love into you until you are melted and moved until you are filled with his divine love and know his love to you and rejoice in it as a child and look forward to the hope of the coming glory. Quench not the spirit, but rather be filled with the spirit and rejoice in Jesus Christ. I don't have a slide for this, but Galatians 5, 16 says this. I say, Walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desires against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, since you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. There's a worship revolution that's happened. This day means something for us now. It means that we can be led by God's Spirit, be filled up with His very presence. Ephesians 5.18 says this, Don't get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. And um, we can't really like translate that rightly into English, but because of like the tenses, we don't have all the same tenses or the same uh, structure of language, but like... The, the, literal, the most literal possible way to translate that is don't be drunk with wine, which is dif, dif, dissipation, but be being filled with the Spirit. There's a constancy of dependency on God's life working its well, way out in our lives. We never get over giving ourselves over to what God has done. We never get over to the spiritual work that he's up to. But so oftentimes we go back to just our own efforts and just like, oh, I'm just taking my backpack off and, and then I struggle with the backpack when actually we just need to get our eyes focused higher and on what it really looks like to follow after Jesus. Um, so what does it look like? I'm going to read you a couple things from Dallas Willard. It's been a while. I don't actually have them up here because I didn't think I was going to get to it, but a miracle, it's only been 30 minutes, so we've got like another 30 minutes. No, I'm joking. Um, okay, so, so what does it look like? And Dallas Willard, I think, actually, I, I, I like him because he's really succinct about like the things that are different. Okay, he says three different things. First of all, he says, like, this is what life in the spirit looks like. You discover remarkable changes in your beliefs, fundamental attitudes, and emotional conditions. And he explains that, because I think that needs explaining, okay? I'm sorry I don't have this up here. What is belief? It is a readiness to act as if what is believed were so. Living the life, people find that they are ready to act as if Jesus Christ is actually Lord and master of the universe. This is a fact about themselves that they will find astonishing, and one they will confess or own up to. Associated with that new and emerging belief in a remark is a remarkable change in their emotional condition. Most prominent in the new condition will be hopefulness, naturally accompanied by joy and peace. One of Paul's prayer expresses this new condition. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace 
in believing so that you may uh, abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. And again, he says, the kingdom of God is not food and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Worship team is going to come up here. We're going to close out. But I really just want us to take a second and take stock. Where is, like, your vision set? Like, when it comes to your life as a disciple of Jesus, if you're a disciple of Jesus, what are you aiming for? I think a lot of us, like, like want a lot of things from life. You know, we want to have friends and we want to understand things. But over and over and over again, in the New Testament, the invitation is for you to be filled with the life of God, to be filled with the Spirit, to come in and be abounding in joy and peace and all the fruits of the Spirit. We do not have a, a, a low view of what it means to follow Jesus. And if you do, I would just say, get over it. Set your sights higher. Not because you think you're so great and can do better. That's not it. But because God is so great. And his calling and his way and his assurances are powerful and true. And he is worth trusting. Trusting to the point of risk. Trusting to the point of leaving my old ways behind. My old ways of understanding and taking on a new paradigm. That is the paradigm that he is the faithful one who has made a way, made me clean, sanctified me, set me apart, filled me with his spirit. And so I can just say whatever else in life I want to value, I'm going to value this above all other things because he is faithful and he is true. I, um, I, I watched a, a sermon. I, I watch sermons from time to time. It's kind of my job. Um, and they, they ended this way. I thought this was really cool. So I just want us to pray, okay? And I want us to, this is what I'm going to do. Like it's spirit and truth, right? Spirit and truth. That's what we need. We need to worship God in spirit and truth. This is a worship revolution. We worship him with all of ourselves. We also worship him with our minds. And the problem is that this oftentimes gets in the way of this, right? This is, that's my problem. I think, I'm, I think I'm very smart. God knows I'm not. So this, this person did this. They said, take your two hands. And if you're not comfortable, you don't. I'm, I'm going to close my eyes. So I'm not going to see you. you. Take your two hands. Place one on your head, one on your heart. And as we just come before God, we just remember, Lord, you have a great calling for us. Lord, it's to worship you in spirit and in truth with all of our heart, with everything in us, our very center of ourselves, Lord. Lord, we don't know how to bless ourselves and we don't have to, but God, we come with our hands over our hearts asking you to bring our spirits alive to get us a better vision, a bigger vision of who you are to fill us up with your very presence, Lord. God, we don't need to be big people. We just need to be full of you, Lord, because you've made a way that you'll be present with us, Lord. Lord, so we ask you, Lord, fill us with your spirit. And God, we pray for our minds, Lord, because we need to worship you in truth, and there are so many lies in our heads, Lord. Usually they're telling us that we're not good enough and we can't. And the truth is that we aren't good enough. 
and we can't, but you can, and you did, and you're good enough. That that's what we need drilled into our heads. Lord, would you sanctify our minds? Would you fill us with your truth? Lord, would you sanctify our hearts? Lord, would you fill us up with all that you have? God, set our eyes upon you, Jesus, that we may have all the life, the life in abundance that you call us to. Do that in us each individually, Lord. Do that in us as a group, Lord. Let us spur one another on to the fullness of what you have. We're yours, Jesus. Amen.